listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. All right, team, I need full engagement. We're going to start with a poll. And if you know me, I love taking a poll. It is very exciting. And this one is very exciting. You're going to be able to use your hands and your voice for it. All right. And I'm going to give you three options. Three options. We need to vote on what the best driving app is. And I know this can get a little hot. I know, I know whole families that call me and say, man, we can't figure this out. It's a fight every time we get in the car. It's a big deal. Here are your three options. There's Google Maps, Apple Maps. Wow, wow, strong feelings already. Strong feelings already. Or Waze. Now here's what's at stake. You thought like, man, it's probably a big Sunday. It's Easter. Man, it's a high stakes game. Because whatever app wins, whatever one you love the best goes first in the taco line. First in the taco line. We got 300 some tacos. We're going to party. We're going to hang out. But whoever's loudest gets to go first. We take the Lord seriously and we take lunch seriously. It's a both and here at Citizens if you're new. So get ready, get prepared. You can use your hands, you can use your voice. Let's hear it for Google Maps. Wow. 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 Charlie, we got an official rating back there? Pretty strong, pretty strong. Do we need to do the others? I kind of felt like a winner. What about Apple Maps? Wow. Wow. Yes. All right. What about Waze? Okay, Waze versus Google Maps. That, that was one. Google Maps. Waze. All right, everyone can go first except Apple Maps. I love y'all, but that ain't gonna work. Um, now here's the thing. With these apps, they give directions but you have to supply the destination. If you just have directions, then the destination is gonna be a mystery. You're not gonna know where you're going until you literally arrive there. Conversely, to flip it, if you know your destination, then the directions along the way will increasingly make sense until you actually get there. And today we're continuing in week 10 of our series of looking for the true king. And it's kept us mostly in the Old Testament. But today we're actually going to start with the destination to help us make sense of the directions that God is giving in 2 Samuel 7. That 2 Samuel 7 passage we read came a thousand years before Christ rises from the dead. Yet it's talking all about Jesus. And the destination for us is that Jesus Christ rose from the literal dead back to life in 33 AD. And that means at least three things for Jesus and for you and I. The first thing, Jesus rising from the dead, as he predicted, it proves that Jesus is God. You don't know anybody else who came back from the dead. Never to die again. There's only one person ever. And he said it happened just like that. That's one reason the resurrection matters. The second reason is when Jesus rose from the death, from the dead, it proves his death 
as a penalty for our sins on the cross was accepted. That means you can be forgiven by God. Your sins, your offenses before God have been paid for by Jesus. Him rising from the dead means penalty accepted, payment accepted, like a debit card going through. The third reason Jesus rising from the dead matters is it proves God's scripture true. That throughout the Bible, it's always talking about Jesus. That he's the everlasting king who's building a kingdom of God that will never fail and will last forever and ever and ever. We will die. We all see it. We know it all too well. People get sick. This world's decaying. Death is inevitable. But in Jesus, we have a king who's conquered death a king who's dealt with our sin, and a king who's building a kingdom of justice and righteousness. We thirst for justice and righteousness in this life, and it's coming in full in Jesus Christ. Amen? And after Jesus rose from the dead, he speaks to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And look what happens in Luke 24. They don't know it's Jesus. Jesus comes up to him and he said, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. He's speaking to Jewish men, Jewish men who know their Bible. Was it not necessary that Christ, that's the fancy word for Messiah, the anointed one, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the first five books that Moses wrote of the Bible, and all the prophets, that means all the rest of the Old Testament, he, Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is making a claim that the whole Bible is about me. All of it. That the right way to read the Bible is focused on Jesus, his coming, dying, rising, and his forever King. That's why we do a series like looking for the true king, going into all these different chapters of the Old Testament that might be confusing unless you have the key. And the key is Christ. That all these stories, all these kings, all these leaders are actually pointing towards one true king in Jesus. And that's where our passage from 2 Samuel 7 sits today. It's one of the most important chapters in the whole Testament because God lays down kind of his internal plan before us saying this is the program. This is what's going to happen over the next thousand years and bleed clear into eternity for all the history of the world. And the setting is its prophecy is given to David the king. Through Nathan the prophet, David is now king. He was anointed at his hometown of Bethlehem as a teenager. A forgotten shepherd boy. Gets anointed to be king because God's spirit is leaving the then current king, King Saul. And soon David proves this anointing's right. He slays the Philistine giant Goliath. And he does it in front of everyone. David goes from unknown to famous in a single battle. And the battle isn't how great David is, but everyone's wowed at God's power. There's no way David should win unless God brought the victory. And David becomes famous. Saul becomes jealous. David has to flee. He starts running and living in the wilderness and living in caves and living out in the woods and living off the land and hanging out with rough folks because they're the only folks that want to be around him. 
But eventually God is faithful to him and he actually becomes king. And David gets right to it, subduing all the enemies around him, fulfilling that promise. And he comes to rest. You can almost feel him like having a sigh in the scripture, like, whew, it's been a long journey to get to the throne. But God's been faithful. And so he turns to his chief pastor and prophet of the day, Nathan, and he says this. Now, when the king lived in his house, he finally has a house. And the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. They've been fighting the whole testament and suddenly they're at rest. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, beautiful cedar. But the ark of God, that's where God's presence is, it's just over there in a tent. It's like literally beside his house in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan says, cool. I I don't know any pastors who don't want a good building. I want a building. If you can give citizens a building, come talk to me. Nathan is about it. He goes, "That, that sounds good. Don't even need to hear the next part. I'm in. And David's not wrong. In Deuteronomy 12, it says, when the Lord gives you rest from your enemies and brings you to the promised land, build me a temple. David's instincts are totally right. But there's a problem. God wants to make some clarifications. Because see, in this ancient pagan world, where this Jewish religion is the true religion, but it's one religion among many, many religions all around it, kings would do this. A new king comes to power. New king builds a monument or a temple to the local god. That temple or monument gets kind of famous. The king along with it gets kind of famous. And that's how they start kind of consolidating power and kind of enshrining themselves as kind of a god king to not challenge their rule and authority. So God speaks back to this idea of David and he wants to make something real clear that it's not going to be like that because their God is not like one of these little pagan gods that's no God at all. This is the real God. Look what God says. Verse four, it shocks Nathan, it'll shock David in many ways, calls him wonder. Verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived? Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day? But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges, those are the rulers of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God points out, I've never asked for this. This isn't like a long-running complaint. I'm I'm, I'm not a nagging God in your life. Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you would be a prince. David's the king of the people, but God calls him a prince because, well, God is still king. Over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
God is telling David two very important things about himself. Two very important differences between the true God and all the so-called gods. And the first is this, that I am the God who is with his people. God has moved with Israel now for hundreds of years, happily, to be with his actual people. It was never about having a big fancy house. It was God coming to be with Israel. And one day, God coming to be with us in Jesus. He's saying a house isn't the goal. Being with you was the goal, David. I'm not angry about my tent. I'm right where I want to be, in the middle of God's people. The God of the Bible doesn't stand at a distance to our struggles in life. Not then, not now, not ever. He is the God who's with us. The second thing God is saying, that I'm the God who provides for you. David, I made you king. You were a shepherd. That was like the lowest job in Israel. I made you king. I don't need favors. I don't need help. I don't need you to prop me up. We are the people who need help. It's humble to ask for help. And it's humble of God here to explain all this to David. And it sets up this miraculous promise to David and to us that instead of David building a house for God, God promises to build a house for David. Not a house of stone and wood and brick, but a house of his descendants and flesh and blood that will build a kingdom that lasts forevermore. Verse 9 says this, God says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And church, that's the gospel. It's not what we do for God. It is what God has chosen to do for us. David gets a mini gospel. He thinks he's doing it right. And in many ways he is. He cares for God. And God looks him back in the face and says, actually, I care for you. And your faith, your life is going to be about me and about me being with you, providing for you, and providing a true house that's going to last forever. And God tells him, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give Israel a place to thrive. He's reaffirming the, pre- the promises that Israel's been receiving from Genesis. But then God says more, that building this house, he's going to make three key promises about this house. He's going to flesh it out for us a little bit of what does it mean that David gets a house from God. It's typical of Bible prophecy. There's an initial fulfillment of this prophecy that's going to be David's son, Solomon, that some of this is lived out by Solomon, the king who's coming from David's own body. But then there's an ultimate fulfillment. Stuff that 
no human king could ever do unless he was also God. An ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Look at these three promises. The first promise, that death cannot stop this coming king in his kingdom, even though David dies. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, you're going to die, David. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it comes true. Solomon will make the kingdom even bigger than David's. Solomon will build an actual temple for God all after David's death. But Jesus will build the forever kingdom. Jesus will reign on a throne forever. And Jesus will build the true temple. You and I, all who believe and worship Jesus, both in this life and forevermore, become, as the New Testament says, a living stone, a temple unto God. The second promise is that sin will not overcome this king or this kingdom. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, which is a fancy word for big sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from King Saul, whom I put away before you. The Solomon and the kings after him from David's line will be disciplined for their sin. But Jesus takes this and flips it. Because Jesus has no sin. Instead, he takes the rods of discipline for us. The blood from his body, from his hands and his feet, of the stripes across his back. He's the king who needs no discipline, but then takes on the discipline of the world to save us from our sins. Written a thousand years before Jesus lives. See, Jesus is the king we need because we need more than a perfect example, more than a holy man. We need a savior for sinners, a king who's actually perfect, who needs no sacrifice for himself. You, I, David, Solomon need the savior long promised to us who the steadfast love of God will not forget even in the grave. As the father's love is inexhaustible and brings the king back to life. The third and final promise is this is that the king and his kingdom will outlast time itself. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's reign will end. Solomon will die. Israel will actually come apart. We will all die. Yet God will preserve this royal line, the literal descendants of David, for a thousand years until one day. Mary and Joseph, descendants of King David himself, will have a firstborn child whose father is God and mother is Mary, not born in a palace like Solomon with trumpets of men, but trumpets of angels in a stable. And that's how God will establish his forever kingdom among some dirty animals on a starry night. Baby Jesus is born. And the angel will give Jesus two names then in Matthew 1, whispering these very promises of this passage and others from Isaiah. Look with me. This is what it says of this baby born to us. Verse 20. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. See, Jesus' name literally means God saves. He's the one who provides salvation for us, just as God clarified in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus' other name is Emmanuel. Jesus is still the God who's with us, fulfilling that he is the king who provides. He is the king who is with us. And it shows that every story of the Bible is about Jesus, is the truer and greater hero of every story. Every chapter, every verse, every story you maybe heard growing up or didn't hear growing up. They're all about Jesus. If you see the hero is a Jesus who comes and is truer and greater. And we are the people who need a rescue in every story. Think about it with me, church. It's not just 2 Samuel 7 or this little prophecy here, this one there. The big stories, they're all about Jesus. See, Jesus is the true and greater Adam who obeys in the garden. Jesus doesn't hide from God, but he heads to the cross. Jesus is the true and greater Noah who saves us from the judgment of the flood by his own bloody wooden ark in the cross. See, Jesus is the true and greater Abraham who brings us to a far greater promised land. Jesus is the true and greater Isaac who is actually sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and greater Jacob, who builds a family out of 12 disciples, and on that sons of him builds his church. Jesus is the true and greater Joseph, who saves us from the famine of sin that stretches all across this earth. Jesus is the true and greater Moses, who leads us out of the house of slavery, our own Egypt, and on towards the promised land. Jesus is the truer and greater than all the judges we talked about, rescuing us at our worst and giving us his best. See, Jesus is this true and greater Ruth and Boaz, bringing you true protection, bringing you true redemption from your sins, bringing you into a true home that will last forever and ever and a love that will never end. It is Jesus who is our true and greater David, a man after God's own heart, who never turns from the ways of the Lord, who kills the great giant of sin, death, and the devil, but he does it not with a sword or a sling. He does it by losing his body for us, only to return back from the grave because he's the greater David. He's the eternal king that all these pages are talking about. 
Jesus is the true and greater Elijah. He's the truly only sinless person to ever live. He's the holy remnant of God. He's the truer and greater Jonah who says yes to God's call to go save sinners, but gets buried in the belly of the earth for us. Not for his sins, but for ours. Jesus is the truer and greater Daniel who obeys his father at any cost, is a lion of a man, but gentle as a lamb that conquers the flames of hell. Jesus is the truer and greater than all the prophets who lives a life of perfect justice and speaks a words of perfect peace and truth to all people and pays a terrible cost with nails through his body only to raise from the dead because he's the king. See, the Bible is a massive set of directions leading us straight to Jesus. Jesus is the message and Jesus is the Messiah, which means Jesus is the mercy for you. There's room for you in God's mercy. That is what God is telling us. As we look at the Bible, maybe you have doubts about the Bible. Like, I don't even know what this is. I can't pronounce half the names or even 10% of the names. The Bible's big. The Bible is written over 2,000 year period. It's written on three continents. It has over 40 authors in three different languages. But yet, this Bible has one consistent message that God saves sinners by his son. And that son is the true king that wishes to bring you into his kingdom. No one could ever coordinate such a conspiracy. Quite literally, lifespan would stop you of a 2,000-year collaboration project. We can't get along on a team project at work, can we? Like an eight-week project is enough to like, and I'm done. I'm quitting. Imagine someone trying to pull together that conspiracy. 66 books of the Bible, over 2,000 years, and 40 different authors of different walks of life. Some didn't even live on the same continent. Yet it all says that Jesus is the king, the peoples described, the geography, the understanding of history, it all aligns to the Bible's account, which leaves us with a choice. We can follow the directions of thousands of years of scripture that lead you to Jesus or not. But I beg you one more time, on the evidence of these disciples, you saw those two on the road to Emmaus, sad, kicking dust with their feet trying to get back to mom. Like, I don't know what happened, but it didn't go well. The disciples are recorded in their own gospels as cowards at Jesus's arrest. They flee, they abandon them. That's why none are crucified with them. They're not there. Jesus dies almost alone, apart from a few committed women followers and the teenage disciple, John. Other religious followings from that time period are recorded in the ancient world as when their cult leader was killed, an angry mob or riot formed and had to be suppressed by the Romans. We have no such record for this. Why? Because this was really different. The man died. People cried and went home. Yet when Jesus resurrected, the scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't just appear to these two guys and these few women first and these two guys and some disciples over here and these like 30 over here. It says he appeared to more than 500 people 
And not a single source in the ancient world disputes this. That's their claim that 500 plus people saw Jesus back from the dead. And the disciples became bold as lions, preaching, teaching, suffering with no regard for their lives. They couldn't even hang out for the death, but now, yeah, they're ready to die and all of them will die fairly gruesome deaths when they chose not to recant that Jesus was back from the dead and he was Savior and Lord. Let their lives be directions to you. Let them bring you to the destination of Jesus. Who would die for a lie? Who would die in dozens and hundreds, even to this day, people dying for Christ in this globe? The Bible is not primarily a book about us and what we do. The Bible is a book about God directing us to Jesus. And our response to him is to repent and believe and follow the king. Everyone serves someone or something. I invite you to come serve King Jesus, the king that dies for you, the king that's with you, the king that's going to live forever, the king that provides salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved but Jesus. Jesus is the king who died for you. Jesus is the king who rose from the dead. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.